Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 30th, 2017. This is episode 1941 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Monday. So Monday, our listener feedback show. i got a long agenda today. I'm going to go kind of more, I'm going to try to do more topics on these feedback shows, shorter responses, so I can cover more variety for you guys. So here's what we're going to talk about today. Concrete example of how the cult of global warming hurts environmentalism. And I'm not going to get on a soapbox. I'm not even going to talk much about global warming other than what the result of it being overdone is from a, from a propaganda standpoint does to the minds of people who would otherwise be incredible environmentalists. And I mean, I have a real example. Also, why we enjoy discussion when we disagree with a person and what type of person that we disagree with do we actually enjoy discussions with? Uh, real quick comment from someone on how communism and anarchism became intertwined and basically the polluted version of, of anarchism that is called anarcho-communism, which is not a real thing. It's just not. You can't be an anarchist and a statist at the same time. It's just not possible. Uh, we won't go deep into that, but just something that kind of explains the genesis of that. A saying from one of our listeners just really explains government in a nutshell. Some questions about black locust trees. Uh, the danger of going way overboard with prepping and projects. Thoughts on carrying a gun with one in the chamber versus not doing that, and why I think if you're not doing that, you're not doing it right. Um, how might automation affect the post office? I don't really know, but I have some thoughts and to answer a question that's uh, a career-forward-looking question by a listener. I want to talk a little bit about the grow bed to water ratios in aquaponics and why there's sort of a rule, but everybody disagrees about it, and there is and there isn't, and how it kind of all works. Um, the next one is an example of how yellow journalism can actually teach critical thinking. So we have some yellow journalism here to make a big deal about something that's not that big a deal and completely taken out of context and how quickly it took me to figure out that it wasn't the way that it was reported and how that can help you do the same thing for yourself with a lot of the bullshit that comes out of both the mainstream media and alternative media. Um, why I don't really like the new freeze dryer from Harvest Right. A lot of you have seen it advertised. I'm not a fan. I'll tell you why. And I'll finish up with some plans for Nine Mile Farm going into 2017. For those that are new to the show, Nine Mile Farm is my farm. I am not just a podcaster and a prepper. I am a farmsteader, I would like to say. It's not, I'm not a big enough operation to be a full-on farm, but we uh, we run our little nine-mile farm, duck farm here, and uh, we're, we're doing more and more cool stuff all the time. All that in just a bit. Before we get into all that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine. Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home. Up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. 
You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have three main segments and a bunch of bullet point stuff for you from Alex Shrug today. I have the Palace of Westminster is blown to smithereens. I have negotiating for peace while preparing for war. I have learning more about the Holocaust. I also have a bunch of bullet points on World War II in review. Since there are so many, many, that is the one I'm going to read today. But I'm telling you, through these years... This is a time when you maybe you want to get over once a day to TSP Wiki and read this stuff for yourself. It doesn't take very long. Uh, you'll learn things like you'll learn in negotiating peace while preparing for war that there was a lot of the reasons that the U.S. and Japan ended up at war because of misunderstandings with very clunky things around translation, just to be one of those many things. Also, we have notable births this year in film, the year in music, and other news. Let's take a look at all these bullet points today. Notable births in politics. All living uh, that were born this year, uh, Bernie Sanders, Dick and Lynn Cheney, and Jesse Jackson. Uh, Richard Dawkins, evolutionary biologist and critic of religion. Charles Whitman, University of Texas clock tower sniper. He had a brain tumor. In entertainment, in music, all living, Bob Dylan, Neil Diamond, and Joan Betts. More in music, all living, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, born in the same year. I didn't know they were born in the same year. Yet more in music, all living, Helen Reddy and Tom Fogarty. Uh, this year in film, Sergeant York is the number one grossing film, the 47 Ronin, uh, war-motivating film, and Dumbo animated a subplot movie to 1941 starring Jim Belushi. And uh, this year in music, we have the Chattanooga Choo Choo, which will be our song of the day at the end of the day. It was the number one song of the year. We have God Bless the Child by Billie Holiday. And we have Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy by the Andrews Sisters. And we have Cheerios introduced. Uh, commercial television begins. The FCC approves NBC to run commercials. The first is for Bulva Watches. And the first programmable, programmable computer is on display. The Z4 is as big as a raft. No relation to Zilog Z80 series. Um, let's take a look at what's going on in World War II because it's about to dominate everything for the next five years. A rumor about Japan's plan to attack Pearl Harbor is going around. Washington, D.C. is notified. Give us the tools and we finish the job. Winston Churchill to the United States. The USA lends leases ships to Britain more lending than leasing. Manhattan Project. Plutonium is discovered. They're going to need it. The rats of Torbuk hold against Rommel. The Nazis call the Australians rats and the Australians like the name. The Quis Quisling becomes premier of Norway and a Nazi collaborator, thus the word Quisling enters the English language. The USA rounds up 100,000 Japanese Americans. Are we at war with Japan? Bob Hope performs his first USO show. show. Are we at war? A German U-boat is captured with an intact Enigma cipher machine. Deputy Fuhrer Rudolf Hess parachutes into Scotland on a mission of peace, but he has no diplomatic power. Hitler launches Operation Barbarossa against the Soviets. The Barbarossa myth has Germany returning to its ancient glory. Ho Chi Minh enters an alliance to throw off Vietnam's oppressors. And so it begins. FDR declares an unlimited national emergency within the limits of peacetime authorizations. What? 
<laughs> Hitler asks for a final solution to the Jewish question. He is asking by what method should we murder all the Jews? Zyklon B is used at Auschwitz to gas Soviet prisoners. First, they came for the socialists. Nazis and Ukrainian collaborators murder 33,000 Jews. The Jews believe they were being relocated. Yes, my homeland did that, and there's anti-Semitism issues in Ukraine up to today. Uh, the second warning message is coming is a com of a coming attack by Japan. It's November 17th, but it's not the only indicator. FDR declares financial war on Japan. He knows the Japanese are going to strike, but not where. Japan attacks Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. The attack is directed by a battleship commander, so he hits the soon-to-be obsolete battleships first. This is a critical error. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. FDR to a joint session of Congress December 8th. It's war. Jap Japanese subs fire on American shipping along the West Coast. The Japanese submarine scare is on. And this is going on amid a, a time of economic turmoil in the United States. And on the other hand, a time of amazing technological and entertainment evolution. People are more connected than ever before. I mean, we think of today as being connected. And back then, it was nothing like today. But they've gone from almost nothing to television and radio linking the, 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 the country and telephones linking the country in a matter of decades and, and electricity being commonplace in a matter of decades. There's people alive right now while this is going on that, that would that were like, I remember when there was none of this stuff, none, none of it at all. If you wanted to go somewhere, you did get on the Chattanooga choo-choo, right, to get to where you were going, which I guess they still did. But that's how you got anywhere. You didn't get a car, drive down a road. And at the same time, the world is descending into complete chaos. And you'll see it in a lot of the, the things from the, not just the war, but from entertainment and the culture coming out of this time. And there's no doubt the United States knew that it was going to war. I want I want to talk about... Something that Alex Shrugged mentioned. I'm glad he did because I was already going to play a little bit of this song for you today before we get into the main stuff today. Um, but it's the song Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. That's a song that almost everybody's heard. It's been covered by a lot of people. It's been covered by, you know, famous people for USO shows and stuff like that. It was originally done by the Andrews Sisters and it says recorded a year before the US entered the war. Hmm. It was uh, recorded in a movie first. The Andrew Systems were in a movie called Buck Privates with no less than Abbott and Costello. Yes, it was a comedy. By this point, the United States was already drafting people. Now, people think the U.S. draft started when World War II started. There was a peacetime draft leading up to the war as though the U.S. knew that it soon would be at war. Yeah, they were drafting people before we went to war. So in January of 1941, almost a full year before Pearl Harbor Day, a movie came out with this song in it, and it was designed to keep people entertained and make them feel good about being in the military and make them feel like there was something upbeat about being in the military because the propaganda machine was already on. Here's a little bit of that song. Was a famous trumpet man from 
small Chicago way. He had a bookie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. They made him blow a bugle for his uncle Sam. It really brought him down because he couldn't jam. The captain seemed to understand. Because the next day the cap went out and drafted a band. And now the company jumps when he plays reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. And so it begins. And you will see all the way up until the middle of the Vietnam War. Hollywood pushed the agenda of the state. It will, it will only be toward the end of Vietnam as public sentiment begins to turn against war that you'll see anything come out of Hollywood that's not 100% pro, let's go to war. And there's a reason, in my opinion. And that reason is, no matter what we did to screw things up, and boy, we helped at the end of World War I that led to World War II, once this thing started, no matter how you feel about war and, and wanting to not fight it. And no one is more anti-war than a soldier, especially a soldier that's already done his duty and can look back and reflect with wisdom. But there's a point at which evil must be confronted, and that's what we're heading into right here. I want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade, or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that, because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a 100% return on your investment from day one. First, you get a, a free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vikram Tala sells that every day for 49 bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you 50 bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. Okay, so getting into uh, the main stuff today, I want to remind you guys, too, the uh, workshop, the 2017 Spring Workshop has gone on sale this morning. Um, didn't sell out, first thing, like it did last time. It's doing more like the other workshops we've done. So you still have time to sign up. I don't know how much. Um, I think there's 10 seats left. And so we, we sold two-thirds, I guess, by now. But if you'd like to attend, uh, there's still you know plenty of seats left for the workshop. And as those sell out, I'll continuously look at the number of vehicles that are going to be here. Because a lot of people carpool, husband and wives coming together. Everything that reduces vehicle count allows me to issue a little bit more headcount allowance because the vehicle limitation on the property is our biggest restriction. So anyway, the, 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 the fall workshop is going to be fantastic. 15 sessions with great instructors on everything you can think of, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and some of it just plain fun. You'll learn a lot. Check out the post that I put out today. If you want to sign up, you have to be an MSB member until tomorrow morning. That's the only way to sign up. Log into your MSB. Just log in. You'll see a, a giant red thing that tells you where to go sign up. You click the link, and you go sign up. If you're not an MSB member, you got to wait till tomorrow, and we'll see if any seats are left. There may be. Um, usually there are. I, like I said, last fall it was like a firestorm when I opened it. 
I think part of it was there was a whole bunch of people that had already connected with each other and were like, we're going to go. So it was like this massive mob came through. So a little more, little more uh, space. And again, this workshop is uh, the last week of March, and it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun, guys. Come hang out with us. Um, so I wanted to start out with something. I got this email today, and I'm like, this is exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about how this basically turning AGW, which is anthropomorphic global warming into a religion, has done more to harm environmentalism than to help it. So let me just read it to you. It says, hey, Jack, do you still use... Oh, that's the wrong one. Uh, that's the newest one. Hey, Jack, um, turn on you. I'm going to turn to you for guidance when I'm in need of some straight scoop. I'm reading a book right now on the, quote, devastation, end quote, of strip mining. The way the author portrays it, it does sound bad. However, the author is generally an environmentalist sympathizer, i.e. global warming, and I just can't listen to people who have fallen for that propaganda. However, I don't necessarily want to believe the defenders of corporate malfeasance when there is evidence of environmental damage these folks have committed, i.e. soil destruction. So I figured I'd ask you, who has a keen ability to read through the BS on both sides, do you know anything about this? Thoughts, thanks, sir. Josh. Well, I was able to respond to Josh already with a brief email and said I would follow up further on today's show. What I know about strip mining, I don't know from research. I know from life. I grew up in the coal region of Pennsylvania. I saw what strip mining does to the land. There's a reason they call it strip mining. It's, it's, it's one of the most, it is one of the most catastrophic things that mankind has ever done to the planet. I can show you places where I grew up where they strip mined and they, when they strip mine, they usually put a breaker, which is a, a processing, a, a rough processing plant for coal right next to the strip mining operation for efficiency. And there's this stuff that's like, rock that's coated with coal dust that's not good enough to, to sell as coal that's left over, and it's called, again, coal slush. And they call these things slush dams, which makes no sense because there's no water. They're just giant expanses. They look like a black lake. We call them black deserts. And you'll end up, as they strip mine a hole, with multiple acres of these black deserts, of all this toxic ick that just washes into the streams and the groundwater. But the thing is, again, I can show you places where these things are, where coal was being mined in the 30s and 40s for the war effort with strip mining in central Pennsylvania. Since World War II, nothing will grow there. Black fields of nastiness and nothing will grow there. Stripping holes, ripped out, and then the water leaching from the mines into the, the surrounding streams. And the streams turn orange. They turn orange. I mean, freaking orange. Like, rusty water orange. Because it's rusted, because iron and sulfur leach into the water at such concentrations, they oxidize and rust. They coat the rocks with orange slime. They take all of the, because when they oxidize, they take all the oxygen out of the water and everything in these streams die. That's what I've seen strip mining do. I can show you other places where strip mining, strip mining's way over there. And over here on the side of the hill, you see these trees and it looks like there was a fire. They look burnt, except the leaves are still on the trees. It doesn't seem to make any sense. When a tree burns, the leaves would be gone. The tree would be down. It just looks like it burned. It looks like it was sprayed with a horrible herbicide, like an Agent Orange, that just, just incinerated it internally, chemically. 
And yet the leaves hung to the tree. The leaves had hung for the trees for a long time. It takes a long time before they actually fall off because of how quickly they die. Do you know what killed them? Zinc. Zinc that infiltrated and flowed through the landform because of the strip mining. And these are just some of the things that I've seen that strip mining does. All one need do is look at a strip mine and see the giant hole in the ground to know that's not good. That's not good. See, what strip mining is, is we don't want to go through all the hassle of putting in a shaft and just taking the coal out. We'll just dig a giant crater the size of a small county, and whatever we get that's coal, we'll put in one pile, and all the rock we'll just go do something else with, and all the stuff that's not really useful, we'll just, which is most of it, just leave it laying around all over the place. Yeah. And that's just strip mining coal. They strip mine a lot of shit. A lot of these rare earth elements that are used to make these eco-friendly cars, yeah, that's it. they're strip mining the shit out of Australia to do that right now. And they're creating the same types of problems. That's what strip mining is. So what does that have to do with global warming? Here's a concerned person, Josh, reading a book about how bad this shit is for the planet, saying, I don't know if I believe it because... All this guy wants to do is continuously, in global warming, blah, 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 and global warming, blah, 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 and global warming. And that's what all of these environmentalists today do. They pander to the cult. So no matter what evil you're pointing to, you tie it to global warming, even if it's not related. And you, you lose a unification message. What I just told you, any sensible human being would go, we shouldn't be doing that. And global warming, and half the people go, ah, oh, screw off, you environmental hippie, wacko, nut job. This is what this religious cult is doing. It's destroying real environmentalism. And don't you think the people in power know this? Don't you really? Don't you think, you know what, we, we can continue to just let our cronies pay us off, we can continue to damage the whole earth, and we'll convince people that the air they exhale is the actual pollutant, and then nobody gives a shit about all the rest of this horrible stuff. That's what global warming is really all about, guys. That's what it's really all about. It's, and I, I challenge anybody. I will debate you. In the, in the debate, we will debate the following way. We will assume in this debate that... The question of whether or not global warming is real or not is immaterial to the question being debated. We won't even debate that. Okay? We'll follow the international rules of debate. We'll do it on a live feed, streaming video, be recorded for all posterity. We will select a moderator that is completely independent, has nothing to do with it, and the question will simply be, has global warming as a concept helped or harmed the environmentalist movement. And I will take the stance that it has harmed. And whoever you are that thinks you can stand up to me, I will slaughter you. But come on. Let's go. Let's let's show the truth about this. Or if you think I'm wrong, bring fact, reason, and logic, and let's prove it. But I highly doubt that anybody will be able to. Because I can show so many concrete ways that this type of thing happens. A person hears about an issue. They say, oh my God, we shouldn't be doing this. Look at all this. They, they say the farmers are leaching all the pesticides and herbicides into the river, and the river's running down into the Gulf. It's creating dead zones. Man, we should do something about this. But it's all caused by global war. Eh, screw it. It happens every day. I'm telling you, you guys that believe in AGW, whenever you're talking about anything but that specifically environmentally, you would, you would do well 
to leave AGW out of it. You'll get more people to listen to you. But if you don't want people to listen to you, keep doing it. Keep spouting a religion. And I'll end with this, because there's people who are new to the show and have never heard me say this before on this subject. The reason I call it a religion is the very essence of a religion is it is, it is, is, is equally important what a person says as what they do, what they profess to believe as to how they act. So a, a pure, you know, absolutely um, evangelical, fundamentalist Christian would say, it, if you can do all the good works you want, but if you don't believe in Jesus, then you're not saved. Okay? Not what I believe, but you know people like that. You have to profess this, no matter what you do. You know what? That's fine in a religion. That's not fine in science. That's not fine in logical reality. So a person that lives like me, that does everything they can environmentally friendly, far more than most of the people out there spouting this crap about AGW, they'll say, oh, he's bad. Well, what have you done? What have you done to take responsibility for your own food? What have you done to take responsibility for your own energy? What have you done to take responsibility for envir the environment as a whole? Well, you, you, you believe something, vote a certain way, and support a tax on, on the air we exhale? Gee, so what you say is more important than what you do in a religion. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it's a religion. And there's no, I'll debate that too if you want to. Now here's an interesting thing though. This came to me from Patrick Rorman of Empty Knives. And uh, it's a little meme from The Art of Manliness. And it says the following. I don't like to talk too much with people who always agree with me. It is amusing to coerce uh, co uh, with an echo for a while, but soon one tires of it. And it was said by uh, Thomas Carlyle. So when you read that, you think, well, he likes to talk to people that disagree with him. And I think most of us like to talk to people and have amicable disagreements, to have debates, to have a conversation about things. And I take position A and you take position B. And we both explain each other fully and understand each other fully. But I'll tell you the only way that works, in general anyway. In general, the way that it works best is when the person you're having that debate with, you, you guys agree most of the time on most things. You agree, say, 90% or 80% of the time on stuff. And when you actually come up to a, a, a kind of a big you know, question where you disagree, you're actually surprised. You're surprised that you disagree. And you know each well well enough, and you have enough common beliefs with each other that you say to yourself, this person either has made a mistake uh, or they know something I don't. They're either, they're, the logic is either flawed or my logic is flawed. And if the discussion can be taken from a standpoint where both sides feel like, well, I could be wrong. And I think you're wrong and I'm probably right. Then you'd have a very amicable discussion. You can both learn something. And you both can come away still having the overriding opinion that you started with, but it will be altered for the better for both of you. Where it doesn't work. Because you would think that, that would mean like you should hang out with people that are completely the opposite of you. That never works. I, I cannot have discussions with people that are guide in the wool, big government liberals. It's hard enough to do with a conservative that's, that, that's, that's you know, pro-government for me. As, as an, as an anarcho-libertarian, that's a big jump. But it's, it's the, it's the, the absolute pro-government, big state liberal. There's, there's nothing in common. There's no way to have a discussion about things like that that's productive. Because this is the other side of this concept. I love having discussions where we disagree. I love it. 
unless it's going to be completely unproductive. If it's going to be pissing in the wind and the wind's 70 miles an hour, I'm not about that. And I, I think a lot of time with you know the, the people you disagree with, th that's what it is. The person is so entrenched in dogma, they're not interested in what you have to say. And the other time it's not really helpful is when I already know everything you're going to say. I've already heard all this before. I've already researched this. This isn't something I came to a decision on yesterday. This is something I've believed and I've fully researched and fully understood for 20 years. Like AGW. So unless you have something earth-shatteringly new to tell me, I'm not interested in your opinion on this because it won't help us. Because then the see, if you're in a discussion like that, then the only thing you're doing is trying to prove your point. Like the only reason I would engage in that discussion is because it might help you, it might help you realize that you've been misled. And you'd say, well, that's closed-minded. It's not closed-minded. Closed-minded is when you haven't thoroughly researched something, you haven't thoroughly comprehended and understood something, and because of your bias, you refuse to look at the evidence. That's closed-minded. When you've already done those things, and you've done it dozens of times, and you've done it many times to entertain people from a standpoint of entertain their desire, right? I don't mean like entertain them, like give them entertainment. I mean like just to be nice. Like, okay, I'll listen to you about this again. And you've already done that enough. There's a point where you have to, with, with your, your own time in all situations, go, you know, I just don't have any more time for this discussion. I don't have any more time to hear the same things, you know? Give me the latest thing you have. Yep, heard that done. We're going to go talk about football or something because this is not going to work out. Let's debate who the best team is this year or something like that. And the Super Bowl will decide it for us. Unfortunately for me, my Steelers didn't quite make the cut, right? Um, on that note, as a side note, I put up a post on Facebook last week, and it's from the show Big Bang Theory. And it's got the guy that plays Leonard. And it was one of the shows where he and Penny were going to watch uh, sports together. And of course, Penny is the is the, the the man in that relationship, sort of, even though she's a very good looking woman. And uh, but he doesn't know anything about sports, so he has like this kind of generic jersey on, and he's got his shirt pulled up, and on his stomach he writes "Go Sports." Well, I put up that picture. I said that's how I feel about the Super Bowl this year. It's the Patriots and the Falcons. I'm supposed to care. I love football, but I I, I just don't care. I just don't care. This is how everybody else feels about football, I guess, all the time. Anyway, uh, go sports, right? Okay, so the next next uh, email is from a guy named Gus. Gus says, I feel the pain of the caller in episode 1939, who sees a lot of communist-tainting anarchy. He needs to understand where this is coming from. The roots of anarcho-communism lie in the Spanish Civil War, when the communists and anarchists fought together to overthrow the Franco-fascists. I've seen Noam Chomsky speak and have read his book on anarchism. He claims to be an anarchist, but he is the perfect example of a European-style communist in anarchist clothing. His book describes the war well enough. Understanding the history of the Spanish Civil War will help any anarchist argue against the communists and prevent them from usurping the name of anarchy here as they have done in Europe. It may be a good idea to do a show on history. You may have covered it in the history segment, but I missed it. Regards, Gus. Um, Gus, I don't think I've really covered this in the history segment, and I've never gone deep into it because I just don't know that there's that deep of an interest with getting down into the details about it. When I talk about anarchy, I already know that there's a huge segment of the audience that's like, Jack goes too far with this stuff. Libertarianism is good enough, Jack. And Okay, fine, whatever you guys want to believe, and that's why I don't push it like it's not a religion to me. It's a philosophy. Um But it's it, that's true, that there is this kind of cohabitation of anarchism and communism fighting against fascism 
in, in Franco's Spain. There's also truth that there was a lot of anarchist, at least called anarchist movements, within the Soviet Union. So much so that Stalin even has a very famous quote on anarchism. The basically a summation of is this, that, you, that it, communism sees that the masses must be freed to free the individual. So first you must free the masses and then you can free the individual. Where the anarchists say that first you must free the individual and then only can you free the masses. Meaning that Joseph Stalin, a devout communist, firmly resting in his hole in the ground for all eternity, where he belongs, um, knew far more about what anarchism was than Noam Chomsky. And uh, this is the, the, the problem with anarcho-communism as a philosophy. It's like saying dry water. Okay, I mean, just to be completely blunt, it's like taking dry water, or a straight circle, you know, or a round triangle. Just don't go together. They don't go together. You can't have one with the other. Anarchy is the lack of a central authority. Communism requires a central authority as a system. As, a, as an adjective, there's nothing wrong with communism as an adjective. Communism as an adjective describes a piece of a system. So an anarchist society would have lots of elements of communism in it. And I know you're going, Ugh. well, that's because you've been that's because of all the ism syndrome that's out there. And and that, that's why I, I, I really have gravitated toward just from now on just referring to myself as a voluntarist. It says what it is. It hasn't been corrupted and destroyed and damaged by people that, that have no idea what they're doing. They don't show pictures of people smashing cars and shedding shit on fire on TV and say, look at the voluntarists in the streets. And it's, it's this, is, this is my view. The position of anyone that is at least middle libertarian over. So people that call themselves libertarians and they're really Republicans, they, 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 yeah, whatever. Or they call themselves libertarians, but they're left libertarians and they're really Democrats. That's one thing. But we will get to, you know, true minarchist libertarianism, libertarianism over. We are not fighting an offensive war. We are staking out a position and we are defending it. Because we can't use force to implement our ideas. Therefore, we are, we are by our own philosophy, prohibited from fighting an offensive war. Whether it's a war of isms or a war of battlefields, we can't fight offensive wars. We can only fight in defense. We can't use force to convey our ideas. So if one is going to fight a defensive war, then one should take the most defensible position possible. So taking the position of, I'm an anarchist, is a very difficult position to defend because the attacker knows exactly how to attack because they believe they know what position you're in and all they have to do is discredit your position. Because your war is not with the attacker, your war was with the observers. What you're trying to do as a voluntarist, as an anarchist, as a minarchist libertarian, is win people over to the ideology and the, the reality that we don't need all this interference. We don't need all this authority. We don't need all this government. That by and large, man can look after himself. We have a really great saying on that coming next. But the, the person attacking your position doesn't need to defeat you They only need to have the appearance of having defeated your ideas to the people that otherwise would be receptive to them. 
So if you say, I'm a voluntarist, how much harder is that to attack? I know you think you're playing semantics, but no, really. I mean, the minute you say a word in an article, in a public discussion, in a video, in an audio, and you say, I'm an anarchist, and you're outside of the comfort area, you're not preaching to the choir, and you, you gain attackers back at you, and you can say that person's ignorant, they don't understand, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're being misrepresentative of what things really are. Uh, they mean well, but they don't know what they're saying. All of those things may be true, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, if 90% of the people observing that or 100% of the people observing that that already are on the other side of things philosophically say, see, yeah, that's what I thought. And when you see 20, 30 people dogpile onto it, the, the onlooker says, well, look, all these people say that they're wrong and, and they point to all these things that, that have been called anarchy throughout history. Hey, they must be right. There's no reason to look further into this. It'll never work. I mean, that's the main reason you hear people oppose it. It'll never work. Okay, I'm a voluntarist. I'd like to tell you about voluntarism today. Voluntarism is the belief that all actions between individuals should be consensual and never compelled with the use of force to do anything anybody doesn't want to do unless someone's harming somebody else. That's a perfect description of true anarchy. But it's much more difficult to attack if we just don't say the word. So much so that I'm thinking of not using it anymore at all. Unless I'm speaking to people that already think that way. Anything outside of the fold of, 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 of true anarchism? Voluntarist. Voluntarist. I hate changing my language to appease others, I guess, but I also hate losing. I hate losing. You, you don't win a war by losing. You, you win a war by making the other side lose. And if we win that war, everybody wins. All right. So on that same note, I got this from, from Brent in, uh, um, in Canada. And here's what he said. Actually, he's in Prince Edward Island. And, uh, he says, hello from P Prince Edward Island. So I'm out stacking wood. It's been an easy winter thus far. It's only about 28 degrees right now. And a thought came to me. Feel free to use it. If you are a decent person, people help you out. If you're not, they won't. For everything else, there's government. I think that sums up kind of what I just said, because people say, well, how will we take care of the poor? How will we do this? How will we do that? The, the acts of generosity I have seen people commit throughout society have been enormous. And I always think to myself, if they weren't so burdened, how much more generous would they be? I know very few people that would walk past a person who truly needed their help who they didn't feel was there by their own making, or even sometimes when they did, they wouldn't reach out to do something to help. So, if you're a decent person, people will help you out. If not, they won't. For everything else, there's government. And that's why I'm a voluntarist. Um, next one. This is a totally different question, which is probably good. We'll take a shift here. It says, hey, Jack, another permaculture question. I am adding a polyculture to cuttings, uh, uh, polyculture of cuttings, to a two-acre sandy hill in front of my house, his own six Michigan. I want to get a lot of nurseries off to a good start and get a food forest underway. My question is about black locusts and how to manage it from suckering and seeding itself out of control. How much work will go into keeping each tree managed? How long will it take for a two-inch bare root cutting before it's producing suckers of its own? Uh, if I am done with a particular tree, is there any way to actually get rid of it once established? Does it keep coming back each time I cut it down? 
I want fuel wood and fence posts for this, as well as room and two acres to plant some trees, fruitstuffs, etc. Any help is appreciated. Pass it along to Ben Falk or Jeff or anyone you want or see fit to answer. I'll take it for you. So, first of all, black locust, in general, doesn't do a lot of soaking, suckering. Heresy, you say. No, it, it really doesn't. Black locust suckers, when it's disturbed, when its roots are disturbed, that's when it starts getting pissed off and suckering. If you use any type of grazing animal, the little suckers that do come up here and there and the young trees that do come up here and there, they'll get grazed right off. Sheep love them. Okay? So it's just not that big a concern. What you want to do is you do not want to coppice black locust. You want to pollard it, even if you pollard it relatively low. But I would say about head height is where you want to keep cutting it down and cut it down. Why? Because then you can get into it. When you cut a locust tree, it comes back like a bush, which is a good thing if you want lots of fuel wood. Okay? But if you cut it at the ground, it comes back like a bush from the ground, and what you used to be able to walk through, you now can't. Now you have this massive sticker pile of nastiness. Okay? So the, the best way to manage black locust is to have some sort of grazing going on where it is, and you're not going to have it run away from you. Um When you want to kill a locust tree, the best thing to do is just keep pollarding it. Just just over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And keep putting it to the ground. Cut it and put it to the ground. Cut it and put it to the ground. Cut it and put it to the ground. And eventually it will give up the ghost like any tree and die. If you don't let it build up enough energy reserves, it'll, def it'll end up dead. And then you just cut it off of the ground once you're sure it's dead. And there's your posts. Perfectly seasoned, perfectly straight, about six foot long. That's, that's how you handle it. However, if you're not going to do anything, if you're just going to put that shit out there and hope it all works out, it may not be the tree for you. Because um, here's what I'm gonna, here's what I'm thinking of. When I was, and this is a, you know real world example. So when I was a teenager, we moved back to Pennsylvania. My uncle and my father went in and bought a chainsaw together, and it was one of many things that that damn near destroyed. Their, uh, their relationship uh, as brothers from fighting uh, because, well, my uncle was an asshole. I'll leave it at that. But there was this huge stripping bank from the stripping hole, from the strip mine that was behind my home. See, I know what I'm talking about with this. And uh, it was covered in a lot of brush and trees and stuff like that. And the back left side of it was a stand of black locusts. And there was probably 20 of them, and they, you could walk between them. It was not impenetrable by any means. We cut them all down. Oh, did they sucker. And then there was this area, you know, about as, about as big as I would say the quarter of a football field that became absolutely 100% impenetrable with thousands of suckers. But those trees stood there for 20 years like that and just kind of came up in a grove And the big ones outcompeted the little ones, and everybody was happy. But when we disturbed it, that was the response that we got. So, so you have to think about your management from, when I disturb it, how am I going to disturb it? And if you do that, you shouldn't have too much of a problem. Remember, shade forgives so many ills. And if you have a canopy of trees, you don't get a lot of undergrowth. And if you have a canopy that's up above your head height and you can get in under the canopy and physically walk around, 
Controlling the undergrowth is really easy. But don't go taking a weed whacker to the, the suckers at the bottom of a, a locust tree and tear it up even more because you'll get more. And don't cut them to the ground till they're freaking dead. Or be prepared then to go out and fight that battle weekly until it gives up the ghost. That's black locust in a black locust shell. All right. Um, this is an interesting uh, email. Uh, one of the first times it's actually happened kind of like, you know, one spouse turns the other one on to the show. They actually like it, but then reach out to me and go, my, my, my spouse is going off the deep end. Okay, this next one comes from a, a, a woman that we will call Tammy. It's not her real name. And Tammy can decide whether she wants to tell uh, Arnold, who is the other partner in this relationship, that it's about him or not. Uh, but I think this is an important subject. So, so what Tammy basically is saying is that, uh, that Arnold is going out and buying all kinds of used stuff and has two or three of this and two or three of that. And most of it doesn't even work with the concept two is one and one is none. They want, and she wants to be ready for anything. And, and, and Tammy was not really on board with this whole way of thinking 100%. But when Arnold said, hey, listen to the survival podcast guy, she's like, this guy makes a lot of sense. And he's like, well, this is why I'm doing this. And she's like, no, I don't think that's what Jack's talking about. And she would rather do things like get projects knocked out and finished at a time. Uh, instead of having equipment doesn't work, let's stock the pantry, let's uh, put in a raised garden bed, uh, let's fix up a chicken coop and things like that instead of having all this equipment that doesn't really work. Okay, if you think you're Arnold or if Tammy tells you you're Arnold, let me tell you this if you're listening today. Tammy's 100% freaking right. Not a little bit right, not mostly right, 100% right. Going out and buying a whole bunch of stuff that are all projects and, and getting more and more stuff for projects before you complete one is a really bad use of your time, your money, and your space, and your resources. And it's something I have to fight all the time because if I want something, as long as I don't want everything at once, I can pretty much have it, and it's tempting. So you have to think to yourself, what are my priorities? And from a preparedness standpoint, I'm going to put it to you this way. If I went to your house right now, shut the main breaker off your house, took your car keys away from you, all right, and uh, and said you can't leave for four days, and you would be miserable, then you're not prepared to go buy any stuff that's a project. You need to get that basic level of preparedness in place, a basic level of homesteading in place. And then you start saying, okay, now that I've got my bases basically covered, now that we can handle two weeks without work because I got temporarily laid off, now that we can handle a 90-day layoff where I have to find a new job, now that we can handle an ice storm that shuts us down for 14 days, now that I can handle all this stuff, let's pick out a cool project to do and figure out what it will do for us long term, and let's go do that one project and, and butt it down. Where this comes from is, I better get the stuff while I can. I better get the stuff while I can, because the, the apocalypse could come or something like that. Well, here's the thing. If you have all this shit, and you, you aren't completing the projects now, and the apocalypse comes, you're not going to be able to fix it, because the thing you don't even know what you need when you're doing this. Well, all that thing needs is uh, this little, thing, little part or something. Uh, well, if it really only needed that, they got it sold to you, probably would have fixed it before you sold it and got more money for it. And this is something 
I'm, I'm telling you, it, it, just from a project standpoint, I've always got three or four things halfway done. And, and what always saves my ass is I finally say, you know what? I'm doing that one. And I'm not doing jack diddly shit with anything else until that one is done. And then it gets done. And then I like start wandering around. I go, well, no, 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 no. You remember how you got into this? Now you, you're down to three. Now you're going to do that one, Jack. And whether you want to do it or not, you're going to do that one. And when I look around and I see something, and I say to myself, Jack, when's the last time you used that thing? Why did you originally get it? What do you think you're going to do with it? And when the hell is that going to happen? And my answers to that are anything other than, I'm going to do that really soon, and I mean really soon. And I'm going to do that like, this is my next project, and it's going to do this. And what will it do for me when it's done? And how will it benefit my life? If I don't have good, concrete answers to every one of those questions, Craigslist or next door, it's got to go. So again, Arnold, if Tammy tells you who you are, Tammy's right. And if you're thinking, that could be me, and you're even thinking, that could be me, but there is no Tammy, um, Tammy's still right. Okay? Plain and simple. You don't want to turn into a junk man. And, and I mean, I've seen that my grandfather was the greatest junk man in history. We had, we had to take shit away without him knowing it. Right? It was hard to do because he knew all his junk. But he had stuff that was 100-year-old junk. It wasn't ever any good. I'm going to fix it up one day. And I asked my grandmother, when did he get this? She'd be like, somewhere right after the war, meaning World War II. And it's the 80s. You're not going to fix it. Whatever it did, you don't even need anymore. You know, I'm not for getting rid of everything when you have sentimental attachments and stuff and all, but you got to be careful with the projects and the acclimation of junk and garbage. You really do. Um, stuff is good, but skills are more important. And when you have stuff, it should do something, right? So if you go out and buy 10 things that don't work, but they're good deals once they're fixed, You're probably still ahead spending the same amount of money on two things that already work that you can use now that do something for you now. now there's nothing wrong with buying an older car that's, that, that works and functions and does what it, it's a car, but it could be better and you put a little bit of money into it. That's smart. Buying a car that doesn't run, but one day it's going to. Man, listen to Tammy. Just saying. All right. So the next one comes from Tim, and Tim says, when you carry a handgun, do you leave one in the chamber? I'm going to answer that before I read the rest of this. Absolutely. All right? Now, I've been around guns a long time, but I've not carried much. The other day at work, a couple of co-workers were hotly debating the idea of carrying a gun with one in the chamber. One was stating it was not safe and did not believe that safety alone was adequate. The other was pointing out how much slower your action would be if you had a chamber around before shooting. I've always thought that a gun needed to be as ready as possible for use. Both men have carried a long time. Both were very solidified in their view. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on this. Thanks, Tim. Um, I always, when I carry, I always carry a loaded gun. That means there is a round in the pipe ready to go. And I'll, I'll put it to you this way. How do police officers carry their guns? Do they carry their guns with, you know, a magazine but not around chambered? Why? 
And if it's so unsafe, why aren't cops constantly, oh, that's right, they kind of do shoot them in the leg, themselves in the legs of Glocks, usually when drawing their gun. But I think that's a training issue. And it's not about whether the safety's good enough. It's whether the, the way that you behave is good enough. Guns don't just go off. They don't. They don't work that way. People carry like this all the time. Most of the time, I'm carrying a 1911. I'm carrying cocked and locked. Cocked, locked, and ready to rock. My foot looks good. My leg looks good. I'm just saying. You, 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 you. This is one of those things, and, and generally the people that say, well, you should you know, carry it, I think they call it condition two or whatever, um, they have no practical experience. They have no, they have no actual training. They've never had a job where they're, they're part of their job included carrying a gun. They've never taken classes. And, and it, it, I'll tell you, a part of the problem is it can be more dangerous. And here's, and not just getting your ass shot. A person that carries that way starts to believe their own bullshit that that round is not in that chamber. It's always a possibility that you chambered around without realizing it at some point in your life because you, cleared a weapon and you thought you cleared a weapon but you know you came home late at night and you went to drop the magazine but you didn't and then when you cleared it and it chambered around and and, and yeah safety should prevent that but let me ask you where you're more where are you more stringent when you look at that weapon and say that weapon always has a round chambered or that weapon doesn't have a round chambered until I put one in there And of course, we should always treat every weapon as though it's loaded. I know that. But I also know the human mind. Now, here's just a practical standpoint. If you're drawing your weapon, a life is in danger that millisecond. We're not drawing our gun because we might have an emergency. We're drawing our gun because we do have an emergency. Somebody's trying to kill somebody, and somebody that's trying to get killed might be you. You don't have time. You may not have time to draw and fire. This one, when you talk to anyone who's a professional, is not a two-sided debate. It, now, in the end, I believe in freedom and liberty, and if you want to carry without one in the chamber, you're free to do so. You are absolutely free to do so. But you won't find law enforcement doing it. You won't find security, professional security doing it. And you won't find a single tactical trainer, a professional trainer, that will say that this is a good idea. And you can be as entrenched as you want, but you're not going to change the reality. We don't have a lot of people blowing themselves up or shooting other people by accident because they're carrying with a round in the chamber. We do have people that are in lethal situations that are carrying, that don't have time to draw their weapon and end up dead in spite of the fact that they were carrying. That does happen. And the only thing we do when we make response time longer is increase the number of people, the good guys that don't win the fight. So if your concern is safety, get freaking trained and get your procedures in place to be safe and carry a loaded gun because all carrying a half-loaded gun is likely to do is get you shot. Or get you killed in a situation where otherwise you may have survived. Because I'm going to also tell you this. The minute that gun comes out, anybody that sees it, good guy or bad guy, good guy that knows you're a good guy, good guy that doesn't know if you're a good guy or not, good guy that thinks you're a bad guy, bad guy that thinks you're a good guy, 
bad guy that thinks you're bad. Anyone that sees it, no matter who it is, assumes it is ready to fire. And that means their response goes up, and if their response is trying to kill you, you better be able to respond freaking quickly. Again, to me personally, this one is not debatable. Okay. Um, this is a question from Kyle, another totally different, lots of variety today. Uh, hey, Jack, Kyle, still up here in the wonderful commie world of Illinois. Question, I want to hear what you think about automation. Yes, another automation question. We'll do the post office, specifically mail carriers, and what the post office mail delivery could look like in the next five to ten years. Background, I've written to you before explaining that I am a, I'm, I, that I am in a mail I am a mailman in the Chicago suburbs, but just want to give you a little more background on me. I have a degree in computer science and networking and security and worked in healthcare IT for almost 10 years. Towards the end of my career, I was laid off twice in a year and a half delivering the mail was the only job I could find around here that didn't consist of a three to four hour commute uh, with a one and a half year old daughter, two month old son. That is just not an option for family, for my family right now. Anyways, I completely agree with pretty much everything you've said about automation and I've seen the writing on the wall myself for a while now. I'm trying to move into the technology department of the post office so I can be closer to the automation and sure a job for a bit longer, hopefully I can, until I can retire. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on what you think the future could be for the post office. I still think America is going to take, Amazon's going to take over the world. They possibly could be the new post office, but who knows? I know the government is always behind the unions. We don't have, we don't help either, but unions did, didn't stand a chance against Uber, uh, when you see how all that's turned out. Do you think government can hold out longer and might they eventually adapt, adopt an automated, up to automated vehicles, robotic arms delivering the mail? Will they just shut the entire mail delivery service down? Uh, what are your thoughts? Thanks again for all you do, Jack. Have a great week and Kyle. Well, I would say that automation has already massively reduced the size of the post office from what it would be today. If you think about the world today compared to the world in 1980, if you took email out of the equation and people still, and that society had grown in some other way, uh, by population and economically then through the technology path that we took. And there's, it still was the case that if I wanted to send you four paragraphs that, that somebody had to physically deliver it to you, how much bigger would the post office be today? How many letters have been just done away with ever coming into existence by an email? So that was a huge portion of the post office's business. And this is part of what has made the post office struggle a lot over the last 30 years. When the, when the, when the, when the post office doesn't have this massive number of letters at, you know, 50 cents or whatever it is now to send an envelope, I don't even know, uh, to go along with all their packages, then they're competing with, you know, FedEx and UPS, et cetera, on an absolutely leveled play, playing field. Because if you want a single piece of paper delivered by UPS, you're going to spend five, six, seven bucks for it. Not, not 50 cents. Right? But, that the post office can bundle all that in because of the post office's model and, 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 and carry all that additional volume with the package that you're charging about the same or a little more, a little less than, than UPS, FedEx, et cetera, DHL, what have you. But when it goes to all packages and you don't have enough of the letters as a supplemental mass product, so to say, Because DHL can't do that. FedEx can't do that. These people can't say, well, we'll take an envelope anywhere you want to in the United States for 49 cents, 54 cents, whatever it is. It's economically not viable. So 
because the post office was first, they ended up with a de facto monopoly on that segment of business, which is in massive decline. So as other carriers come up and compete, that, that eroded a bunch. So, but what we're really asking here is not about the post office, we're about delivery. Because that's really the that's really the thing. Like so, if the U.S. Post Office went out of business, okay, and I don't think it's going to, but just say that it did, then the stuff they're not delivering all has to be absorbed by competition, and someone has to do the things that need to be done to get it delivered, whether that's automation or whether that's human beings. I I, I don't really know where things are going to go on this point from delivering a box to you. For instance, today I ordered two fish tanks from Walmart because they had a really great deal and it fits what I'm doing here that I'll talk about at the end of the today's segments. Um, someone has to bring those to me. I, I don't see those bring, being brought here by a drone anytime soon. But what automation, I think, will do is continue to dwindle away at the interim steps. And I, I've said this before, I've gotten heat for it, but there are thieves in the post office. We know this. We've had enough shit stolen out of the mail to know this. And robots aren't going to steal. And I don't believe that most of the theft, I don't believe hardly any of the theft takes place at the delivery side. I think it takes place in the interim. Either the common carriers that are used to flip stuff along the way uh, and sorters and things like that. So I, I, I think that's where you'll see the automation continue to, to tear things down. Now, your question, if you move into that automation world within the post office, will that make your job safer? I don't know. I don't know because the question will then be, do, does the go-to become internal employees or does it become contractors or contract with other companies to do the automation? What I do know is I would do it if I were you because you're already working for the post office anyway. If, if, if you end up being wrong and you want to go back to carrying, carrying mail, you can always do that. And the skill set is transferable. So I wouldn't, so I know you want your retirement and all, and we'll see if that happens and we'll see how many retirement plans actually survive the next 15 to 20 years in all walks of life as they're, as they are right now. Um, but what you really need to, 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 to look at, and this is for everybody, this has nothing to do with automation. Per se, it has nothing to do with the post office or a government job or whatever. Staying marketable, staying marketable, having a skill and knowledge set that makes you marketable if you do lose your job, and and being someone that can say, well, I worked for the post office on these automation projects, and I'm familiar with these software uh, methodologies, and I'm familiar with this type of robotics or whatever it is, that makes you marketable. In a, in a situation where the, the 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 muscle work is dwindling, so to say, and the mental work is where the new opportunities are. That doesn't guarantee you success, but it gives you greater opportunities for success. And as you learn those things, remember, this is the big thing. Always take a job. Always move in your career to where two things are, are true. One, you're better off there than where you are. I've told my son this a million times. I don't know what I want to do. Go do something that pays better. Go find something that pays better. You know? Go find something with better hours that pays better. Whether you think you're going to like doing the work or not, go do that. And then when you get that done, if you're not happy there, do that again until you figure out what the hell you want. And there's something to be said for that. So if this gives you 
better pay, better hours, better knowledge delivery, whatever, then go do it. And then the other thing is always look for jobs that teach you something. And once you've taken everything you can learn out of a job, if there's an opportunity to go do something better or different that lets you learn something new, go do that. Go do that. The days of the company company guy retiring with the watch at 30 years is done. It's over. Forget about it. Just forget about it. As I was coming up in my career, I'd be at a company for two years, another company for two years, another company for a year and a half. Go look at my write-up on TSP Wiki. It's insane. But it was always that. I've, I've learned all I can here. There's a better opportunity here. I can learn something more. And even if I have to bullshit a little bit to get in the door, I can do it. I can get the opportunity. I can prove myself, and I can do this again. And eventually I'll figure out what I want to do. That's what led me to doing what I do now. That's why I have the diverse background. That's why I can talk about all these different subjects. That's the pathway. So, so Kyle, I'd go for it. I'd go for it. And, I, and whether or not it ends up being a good long-term play as a post office employee is immaterial to the long-term trajectory of your career, your opportunities, and the ability to stay marketable in an evolving marketplace. This next one's from Jason, aquaponics question. Says, Jack, thanks for all you do. You had a call the other day about garden ponds and aquaponics. You mentioned that a pond can quickly outgrow the ability to reasonably overstock the ponds and then have enough grow bed to filter the system. Is there a general rule of thumb on the ratio to be used? Or can you point me to a website or book to help with the correct guidelines? I've casually looked, but everywhere I go is trying to sell me a system. Any help would be grateful. Thanks again, Jason. Okay, the answer is there's a guideline. And all the aquaponics people disagree about it. And it is pretty much, it's one-to-one, -one, so a gallon of grow media to a gallon of water, or it's one-and-a-half-to-one, -one, which is a gallon, a gallon and a half of grow media to a gallon of water, to two-to-one, two gallons of grow media to a gallon of water. And there may be some people that, that think one side or the other out of those bounds, but 99% of aquaponics practitioners will give you one of those as their standard that they believe is right. So from one to one to two to one, with, with the higher number being the grow media. Um, I love the school of thought of around one and a half to two generally being best. But there's so many variables. How many fish are in the system? How big are they? Um, so I may need more media space in the system um, than I'm currently using. Because as the fish grow, I'm going to keep adding more plants to more and more media. So maybe it is one-to-one -one in the beginning of the year, but toward the end of the season, maybe it's two-to-one. Aquaponics, in many ways, is an art more than a science. And the reality is, you keep an eye on your water and the amount of nutrient in the water and the growth rate of the plants. And you either add plants or add fish, or remove plants, or remove fish. But kind of getting to the crux of it, the reason I like this question does help me explain my point. So people say, well, I have a pond, and I want to do aquaponics with it. Let's say it's a relatively small pond, right? I mean, we're talking about you know, a typical small stock tank, somebody dug out over a weekend with a rented skid steer. It's holding 25,000 gallons of water. Let's say we go to the low end, For aquaponics of one-to-one, -one. okay, we need 25,000 gallons of grow media. A six-foot round stainless steel stock tank is 470 gallons. Your typical round stainless steel stock tank, not the big giant eight-foot ones, the six-foot ones. The ones that are manageable, you can put them in the back of a pickup truck and lean them sideways and throw a ratchet strap over them. The ones that I built my little... Uh, 
my little garden ponds out of, 470 gallons. Um, at one-to-one, we'd need 53 of those for that little stock tank pond. To stock it to a level where we'd get enough nutrient going on to grow the shit out of food and to have enough grow media to filter it back out so we don't kill the fish. And I know what you're thinking. I know what many of you are thinking because you, you, you think critically and logically and you make the next logical leap, but then we have to step back and examine it. What you're saying is, well, then why can't we simply stock it to a little bit more or a completely reasonable level and then we'll put less plants on it? Because then there's not enough concentration of nutrient for those plants. The nutrient has to be a certain concentration to be enough of it accessible. There are cheats. There are cheats. And some of the stuff I'll tell you about at the end of today's show we'll be doing here. But if we put in some flood and drain aquaponics to a system where the system is larger, uh, the water system is larger than the aquaponics side can take care of, we can, we can keep the stocking densities to something that makes sense that may not really need the aquaponics. Or the aquaponics just help a little bit, and we can foliar feed the plants. Mix up some garret juice and spray it on the plants. We, you know, we can do that. But then we're in aquaculture with some aquatic, uh, aquatic enhancement of, of whatever we're growing. Aquaponics is a balanced system. And again, depending on who you ask, you're one to one, one and a half to one, or two to one as a general rule of thumb, and you adjust accordingly based on your system. And again, I am of the school of thought from everything I've seen and everybody's systems I've looked at that it's closer to the one and a half to two to one ratio than the one to one ratio. That you actually want more bed than you, than you have, uh, gallons of water. So what that would mean is if you had two 330 gallon IBCs, they're not going to be a full 660 gallons of water. You know, you have about 30 foot, 30 gallons of headspace on both of them on average, but plus you've got a solids filter. So let's just go ahead and call it 330, 660 gallons of water. We need somewhere between 660 uh, to, uh, what would that be? 660 times 2, 1,320 gallons. 1,320 gallons of grow bed. That's a lot. Generally speaking, your grow beds are, you know, if you're doing flood and drain, they're kind of shallow. You don't want to have like a big, deep 100-gallon uh, tank for, for flood and drain. You use like a little 50-gallon tank. So if we were doing just flood and drain, which I wouldn't necessarily advise, you need 13 of them, roughly, to do one-to-one, you need 26 to do two-to-one in that system. So that's why there's kind of this limit to how much water you can have because you run out the other side of, of your grow bed capacity. If you can put enough in, then you can put more water in. And then the other thing is so then people start incorporating deep water raft. Well, if you're doing deep water raft, yeah, you got all those rafts, but you also got all, you got, now you got more water, right? So now we need to keep our leaf crops going in large numbers or we need to grow aquatic vegetation in those or do something else uh, to deal with the surplus. And it's all a lot of fun. And we're going to be doing a hell of a lot of it here going forward. But you just got to think about those limitations. So again, one to one and a half to two to one, somewhere in that range. So time for a lesson in critical thinking and examination of things that are purported to be facts. It says, uh, this comes from Chris. Chris says, check this crap out. Amazon, quote, volunteers, end quote, to tax Mississippians what you need to know from BAMSouth.com. Well, BAMSouth.com is uh, bordering and teetering on there being one of them their fake news sites. 
And uh, not the way we're using the term fake news back at the mainstream media, because they put fake news out all the time, but the way they mean it at alternative media. The, the, I mean, this is bullshit. Here's what it, here's, I'm going to read this article, and I'll give you the, the truth about it. And you, uh, An article you can uh, link to. I can't read this whole thing. It's too long, but here's basically what it says. I'll read until you get the gist of it. Amazon and the Mississippi Department of Revenue have announced that they have come to an agreement on a tax increase. We are just now finding out the details of the agreement. It appears that it will cost Mississippi taxpayers 7% for online purchases. There are some th things about this new agreement that upset me. First off, I did not agree to anything. I certainly did not agree to a tax increase. Secondly, my legislator did not agree to it. In fact, none of our legislators agreed to it. You see, the term of the new tax were agreed to in private negotiations between the Department of Revenue and Amazon. I'm going to stop there because almost everything Everything is wrong up to that point. Almost everything is wrong. If you read the article from, you know, I like to bash, you know, um, you know, the, the mainstream media, but this is from News5WKRG.com, and they're giving a much more uh, accurate reflection of it. What actually happened is the legislature passed a law. So remember it says, my legislature said he didn't agree to this. Yeah, he did whether he knows he did or not, they passed a law this year that said if you do business in Mississippi, selling to Mississippi residents, and sell over $100,000 of product, no matter how you do it and from where you do it, no matter how you deliver it, it's subject to taxation under sales tax in Mississippi, and you have to do withholding. So if you're in Texas and you're selling out of old school mail order catalog and you sell more than $100,000 into Mississippi, you have to do withholding as though you were a Missouri, uh, a Mississippi um, uh, merchant, which is completely the opposite of the way things have been up till now. Okay? I mean, it's always been if it ships from out of state, it's not subject to state tax. Well, Mississippi legislature changed its law. Now you can see that's right, wrong, or indifferent, but the facts of the other article are incorrect. You hear the term alternative facts? It's a legitimate point. Because the, the main assertion is that Amazon has agreed to, to charge Mississippi residents 7% tax for all purchases that they make. But the alternative fact is Amazon agreed to it with a gun to their head. Because once Mississippi puts that law in place, if Amazon doesn't do it, they become subject to being liable for having to pay it. You can either withhold it from your customers or we'll send you a bill for all the business you do here, which is the type of business you are. You have to report all that revenue. So Amazon didn't volunteer for shit. The, the Mississippi legislature passed a new law, and Amazon had to make a tactical decision as a corporate entity. Do we withhold taxes in the state of Mississippi when we do business there, number one, or, or do we not do business in Mississippi? Because option C is a no-go. That would be, do we not charge it and pay it on behalf of our customers? So the villain here is not Amazon, it's, it's, it's the Missouri legislature. It is the, the very person that this guy Danny Bedwell at, at, at BAMSouth.com is defending. They did it. They passed the law. Yeah. And if you read the whole thing, it's really bad. Like, scared yet? Right? It's a shady deal. This is that quote. It was a shady backroom deal between the Department of Revenue and Amazon to raise your taxes. Scared yet? Read on. This guy doesn't have a shred of journalistic credibility in his body. Because either he believes his own bullshit, and that means he didn't research this at all, 
or he's just freaking a liar. You choose which one you think. I think he just didn't research it. I think he got the he got alternative facts confused. The facts are the the Mississippi Department of Revenue did go to Amazon and say, "Hey, what are we going to do about this?" And Amazon said, "Well, shit, if that's the rules, we'll start holding withholding sales tax of this date." And the Department of Revenue from Mississippi said, "Okay, that works." We'll expect your sales tax reports to start coming in on this date and all the revenues to be paid, you know, monthly like everybody else does in the state of Mississippi. And Amazon said, okay, can do, we'll do that. Well, Amazon volunteered. If Amazon volunteered to withhold Mississippi sales tax, you volunteer to pay your income tax. I mean, there's, there's no congressman that passes a law that says you have to pay your income tax, but you pay your happy ass, your income tax every year, don't you? And, and your government says it's what? It's voluntary. It ain't voluntary. Don't pay it. See what the hell happens. That's the situation Amazon was in here. Please, when you read shit like this, just immediately assume it could be bullshit. Don't assume it's bullshit. Assume it could be bullshit. Every story you ever read that gets anything in you emotional and research it and find a competing storyline. And then if the two are identical and they come from totally independent sources, it's probably credible. And you might need to do some more research, but it's probably credible. If they're divergent from each other, if they tell entirely different stories, then you have to ferret out which one is factual. So it's really easy to then say, well, this article says the Mississippi legislator passed a law that says that merchants must, and go see if that law was passed. Well, gee, there's that law passed. Well, Mr. Bedwell is an asshat. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And I'm not putting down uh, Chris, who sent this to me, but, I mean, check this crap out. So Chris was angered because he read this, and when you look at it, it looks like a very legitimate website. And it probably sort of kind of is. This is not a website. When they talk about fake news on, on Facebook about Clinton and losing the election, right? They're talking about these websites where you go to the front page and it says something about, like, you know, space aliens ate Barack Obama's baby or, or something like that. Like, they're parody sites. They're clearly, th this site is putting itself out to be a, a business-based blog, right? And... It's just, this is the furthest thing from news I've ever seen. It, this is a terrible um, misconservation of, of the facts. And what I've noticed is that uh, Danny Bedwell, contributing writer, has his picture down there with a bio. But uh, I call this thing a blog, but there's no place to comment. So no one can call out this asshat directly and say, please defend your position. It just sits there. So that's why I love blogs. If a writer wants to put something out on a blog, then a reader can say, hmm, you said this, but right over here is a law that your legislator passed. Maybe he voted against it, but the legislature voted for it. Please to explain yourself. No one could do that with this asshat. And I don't think this is important enough for you guys to email him and tell him I said he's an asshat. And I don't think this issue is that important. And let me tell you why this is kind of moot anyway. This whole this started a long time ago, and it was part of why I held back on being an affiliate for Amazon, especially since I was living in Arkansas at the time. Arkansas was one of the first people to go, or first states to go to Amazon and say, you need to be withholding sales tax in Arkansas. And Amazon responded with, we do. When, an, when, when, when someone buys something from us, if we have a warehouse or a place that is shipping from in Arkansas, And it's an Arkansas to Arkansas transaction. We withhold 
sales tax. Our company's not based in Arkansas, though, so if somebody buys something from us and it ships from a warehouse in Texas, it's interstate and not subject to taxation. And what Amazon said is, you know what? If the affiliate, so let's say Jackson affiliate in Arkansas, then he actually made the sale, and therefore it was an Arkansas, we want you to charge sales tax on that. And then Amazon said, we, we, the, the, the amount of tracking to do that is, it, it's insane. We can't do that. It's, in, it's unreasonable. It places an unreasonable burden on, on our company to be asked to do that. And they said, fine, then just tax it all. And for a while, what Amazon said is, okay, what we'll do is we'll just get rid of all our affiliates in Arkansas. We won't have affiliates in Arkansas. So if you were an affiliate for Amazon in Arkansas, your livelihood was destroyed because the government wanted it. It's cut, and Amazon couldn't give it to them the way they asked for it and didn't want to give it to them the way they were asking for it. So eventually, Amazon was attacked from other states that did the same thing. Like, they followed the model, the mafia. You know, they start, they see other mafia, it works, well, I'm going to do it too. So then Amazon realized this is going to be a, a, a no-win situation. So at that point, they capitulated to Arkansas and said, fine, we'll just tax everything within Arkansas. And they've done it everywhere it's happened since. They've capitulated. They didn't volunteer. They capitulated. Because the business in that state is worth more than standing their grounds and not holding sales tax. And here's why they're capitulating. Because it won't matter anyway soon. I pay sales tax on almost everything that I buy from, our, from Amazon. And Texas has never done this. Texas never went after Amazon. Texas never said, you have to do it. But there's so many warehouses in Texas that almost everything I buy on Amazon ships from inside the state. That will be the case in almost every location soon, except for small, more rural states. Because Amazon is doing these satellite warehouses everywhere so that they can ship faster, quicker, less expensive, and more efficiently. So Amazon doesn't even care. Because they know, you know what, in the end, we would be, we would be charging sales tax on all of this shit anyway. We would. And all these other online retailers are going to end up capitulating and doing the same thing. So this is a non-event of a non-event. And of all the things you have to worry about with taxes, it should be more about what they're spending on them than the fact that they're taking an existing tax and making them apply to anything you buy within your state. I'm not happy about it. I don't think it's good that government can steal money. You know that. But let's be honest in our reporting about it. Because I bet you, I bet you this, this gentleman here, this, this Mr. Bedwell, would defend the shit out of the government in so many ways. But he's just got his facts misconstrued. And you don't have to have them misconstrued yourself. You gotta investigate this stuff. And you know what it took me? It took me one Google search. All I did was Google search. Mississippi Amazon sales tax. Find one article, first article listed, read it, that makes sense, verify. Did the legislator, legislature pass a bill that said this? Yes, done. Mr. Bedwell's an asshat. This is the real story. Don't be lazy. Find out information, vet, vet stuff before you get upset about it. Uh, this one came in uh, from Ard. Ard says, Jack, this is an expert counsel or for me, and I want to know whether I or Erica had any opinions on uh, the Harvest Right freeze dryer. Uh, I find with my family's busy schedule, food often is left uncooked and rots away before we get around to it. Freeze-dried canned and dried fruit is easier uh, since we're not concerned about it spoiling. Would it be more cost-effective in the long term to freeze-dry our food uh, bought on sale from the garden? 
bought on sale or from the garden if harvest if harvest right equipment is a decent kit to begin with thanks art okay from what i know it works just fine it works just fine um so the smallest one which is about 16 inches by 18 inches by 25 high and and maybe a third of that space holds food so you can imagine right there that's a a significantly small amount of food Uh, that can fit in the dadgone thing at one time is almost $3,000. And these things use a lot of energy to do what they do. Um, they're, they're not, uh, insignificant in their energy usage. Freeze drying is the, the best and most expensive way to store food. It, it really is. So I wouldn't put you down for it, but I would never buy it. I wouldn't ever buy it. I wouldn't buy it in a million years. Not at the price that it is. Because if I start looking at, well, what am I going to freeze dry? Most of my vegetables dehydrate just fine. It's much less energy, much less expensive, uh, in every way, shape, and form. And just as good from a standpoint of if you're, 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 you're dehydrating jalapenos or bell peppers or carrots or whatever. Um, all of that stuff does really well just dehydrating. The main thing that you're going to want to freeze dry certain vegetables, like I mentioned before, green beans, but how much green beans do you freaking need? And there's so many other ways to store those. It's meat. Meat is the thing that you can really preserve at a high level of quality with freeze-drying. Well, when you start looking at the cost of freeze-dried meat, if you actually figure out how much the meat would cost, you know, and then you add the energy to it, the reason that it's so expensive isn't that the meat's expensive, it's that the freeze-drying's expensive. The meat cost is built in. And if these companies have to charge what they do to make a profit off operating at an industrial scale, I just don't think you're going to pull it off at a hobbyist scale, so to speak. The, the exception. I could see in a community where you have four or five families living close together, uh, that are all producers. You know, they, they raise cattle, they raise chickens, they raise all that stuff. And uh, maybe they bought one of the larger ones together. Maybe it would make economic sense. I just personally don't think they make economic sense. It's not that they don't work. It's just how much energy they take to work, how much the individual thing costs, and how much the, 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 the root product costs. You can buy a whole lot of mountain house beef and chicken cubes before you paid for one of these things. And then you got to think about the payback. The payback isn't, well, you know, I, I made $3,000 worth of de uh, freeze-dried beef, so I'm, I'm even now. What the beef cost you? And you might want to go figure that out and do the math before you make a decision. I, I've been asked about this a lot. I see it around a lot. I see it advertised a lot. You know, they're a good company. They're an American company. I, I, I don't want to see anybody fail as an entrepreneur. I love to see new innovative products. This is certainly new and innovative, but I don't think economically it works. So even though I'd like to see it work and I'd like to see the company be successful, I won't endorse it. I won't recommend buying it because I don't think it makes sense for you. If you think it makes sense for you, go ahead. But but I would challenge you very much so to run some numbers and, and to figure out where your break even is. 
you know, get pricing on, you know, Mountain House pork chops, Mountain House cold shrimp, whatever, Mountain House beef cubes, Mountain House ground beef, all this stuff that would actually be the high dollar stuff worth doing. And then price what the cost of acquisition of that is. And if you say, well, I hunt deer, so that's free. You better figure out what a deer costs you. That's your license, your time off work, all the stuff that it costs you, right? And, and then figure out what your time to return of investment is, ROI. What's your time to ROI? Where is it a break even? And then how long is it before you, you say, let's say, uh, you, you spent $4,000, $5,000 on one of the larger ones, and that you feel that you've now gotten $8,000 out of it and you've doubled your money. And if that's 10 years... A lot of shit can happen in 10 years, I'm just saying. And that, and I'll just say this. When you do your calculations, you're going to do it under ideal circumstances. You're gonna, Well, I'll do this and I'll do that. And we all know how that goes. We talked about those projects earlier. We're all going to do so many things, and we all realize we can only do so many things. Just my thoughts on that one. And, well, folks, that wraps us up for the day, except for my kind of little bit of closing stuff I wanted to tell you about today. Uh, just some plans that I have for the, uh, for the farm uh, maybe a few minutes here on that. Uh, first, I put out a video today that you might want to take a look at. It shows you a lot of things that have uh, gone on with our aquaponics system, uh, changes that we're making to the aquaponics system and the aquatics system, and uh, kind of a, a system that uh, David Siegler and I came up with uh, for uh, housing bullhead catfish in my aquatic tanks, which are being completely rebuilt in the next few weeks. And we've got to get all this stuff done before the workshop, so it's all here for people to see as well. Um, but uh, here's some of the stuff I'm going to do. Uh, number one, I missed out on something called the dollar-a-gallon sale at Petco by one day. And I just thought I had like another week's time or something like that for some reason, so I wasn't in a real hurry. And Sunday I went out to find a Petco, because I usually go to PetSmart, and I get to Petco and I find these 40-gallon breeder tanks. And uh, I'm like, there's no pricing on them. I want to make sure the sale's valid. The guy comes over and goes, that sale ended yesterday. They're $120 a piece now. So it went from $40 to $120 a piece. So needless to say, I didn't buy them. And the reason I was going to buy 440s is I found this, this, this uh, rack at Lowe's that will hold stacked, two stacks of 40s. So 440s, and you can buy that, that rack for 80 bucks. So these are aquariums to go inside the house to be breeding tanks, and then just for ambiance and things. I want my office a little bit happier, right? So the reason I was going to do was to get the racks, and I also wanted you know, to go as big as four tanks, and 255s side-by-side really won't fit in the wall, so I can't stack 255s. Sometimes you don't think. Even a person that talks about thinking all the time, you don't think. So I get home yesterday, I'm thinking, there's some pretty good deals on these 55-gallon starter kits with the hood and the light and the filter and all that shit. Um 255, so I couldn't fit 455s on that wall, but can I fit 255 stacked and 240 stacked? Turns out, yeah, I can. Got lots of room for that. So I, I just ordered these 255. Yeah, I guess the dogs heard me perk up like that and got upset there. So I, I just ordered the 255s, and that dollar, this is a good thing for those of you that want to do aquatics and stuff and you want tanks inside to work with for breeder tanks and stuff like that. Um, apparently, like every other month or every once to every other month to every three months, Petco does this thing. And it's only certain tanks. They do like 10s, 29s, uh, 40s, 55s, and 75s for a dollar a gallon. So you get a 75-gallon tank for 75 bucks, brand new, warrantied. So what I'm going to do is I'll put the 255s in first to get them up and running and cycled. And then when they do that dollar a gallon sale again, I'll put next to them 240s. And I'll give me 240s and 255s in my office. And that will let me do things like breed-specific 
stuff that I want to put out into the aquatics and aquaponics system. And also to like hold some breeding stock over the winter of things like tilapia so I don't lose them all. Right, so that that's going to be cool. And uh, then we came up with this this way in my steel tanks. I have these six by two steel tanks uh, that we were using as grow out tanks this year, and had some problems with freezing up and all. We're going to replumb them with two inch return lines, so we can run the pump just flat out. And that way, with the water moving fast enough, we won't have it freeze up on us. And uh, we came up with this really cool way. You have to watch the video to see it to build basically this habitat in them with two concrete mixing trays and a couple center blocks off to one side with a big tray and a little tray, it's going to be awesome. It's going to let us plant emergent vegetation. It's going to be cool. So we're going to also be doing some reconfiguring in the grow tunnel, the aviary that the quails are in, uh, with the way we're laying the beds out. And we're going to be really focusing this year on aquatic and aquaponic, uh, aquaponic systems uh, to the point where Almost all annual production will come from those systems. And we have some other tanks I'm going to be building, some really cool things going on with the pond. So this is going to be the year of water, right? We've done the year of trees many times and the years of ducks and livestock and all. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on there too, but we're really going to expand that high-intensity production because the stuff we grew last year with the system, you know, very young and not really developed yet, was fantastic. We got so much so fast. Uh, I'm, I've become a big believer. I just kind of want to let you know that. On another note, if you like this show and you want to support us, one of the ways you can do that is by doing your shopping at tspaz.com when you're going to go to the uh, of many times mentioned today, amazon.com. So if you're going to buy from amazon.com, before you do that, just go to tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z.com, click a link, and next thing you know, you will be at Amazon. It will look the same. It will act the same. It will behave the same. You will do your business. You will buy your stuff. They will ship it to you. You will be happy as an Amazon customer, and you will have helped the Survival Podcast with not a penny out of your pocket and maybe one to two seconds extra time to click that link rather than go straight to Amazon. So we really appreciate everyone that does that. Remember, I never ask anybody to do anything without trying to get something back. So today I have a product for you uh, reviewed on Amazon called the Magic Worm Blower. Jack, why would you want to blow a worm? Uh, well, you blow them up, not explosion. Put air inside them. It's basically a little needle on the end of a bottle that squirts air. And the way this thing works is you, you take your worm, you put it on your hook, you stick that in there, you push some air into them. And when you cast them out with well, a sinker, if you have it like, say, 18 inches from the sinker, your worm floats 18 inches off the bottom instead of laying down on the bottom in the muck. This increases your catch rate of fish. This is a, an old trick, an old old-timer secret that's not been a secret for 20 years. See, all the old men back in the 70s told the young kids like me about using a hypodermic needle to do this. And young kids blab, and we went off and told everybody, and everybody knows. But yeah, when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, you used a needle, a hypodermic needle to do this, and it still works. But you got to buy like a big box of needles. You can buy one of these for five bucks. And uh, it, it works just fine that way. But the reason I do these reviews is educational. And I always try to make sure that you learn more than just the basics. So I'm going to give you three stories of how I've used this technology to catch fish, um, other than just a worm off the bottom. So one night, my uncle and I are out on a lake called Tuscarora in Pennsylvania, and we were fishing and fishing, and we weren't catching nothing, but we were hearing moromp, moromp, so the bullfrogs are out. So we, we rig up a, a gig, a frog gig with some wire, and on the end of the net pole, and we go around, we're gigging frogs, right, because uh, at least we're putting something in the cooler. And uh, we're back in this one, like, cove, and we hear splash, splash. And you can tell it's fish hitting the surface. So the gig goes down, the rods come out, we're throwing jitterbugs and topwaters and 
dropping worms back in there and nothing, nothing's biting. We don't want to move in on them and scare them. And we keep hearing every so often, splash, splash. So finally I take a worm, take the weight off my line, hook a worm through the collar, pump him up and throw it out there and let the worm float on the surface. And the moon's up so they can see silhouettes. And it took about a couple seconds and there goes the line. Set the hook, big ass black crappie. Biggest crappie I ever caught was that first one. Still this day, never caught a bigger crappie than that. I'd never catch crappie on worms. I always catch them on minnows. So my uncle throws one back in there. He catches one. We caught like 15, 20 of them that night. Big big stringer full of crappie without being able to float those worms would have never happened. Different situation. So I'm a teenager, and I'm at this little pond, and it's a pond where they put fish in like trout for kids to fish in the spring for like they call it a rodeo. You know, so they just throw ass loads of the trout in there, and the kids go just catch them left and right. And they always put some big ones in there. The big ones are smarter. They generally don't catch very many of them. And there's these big-ass rainbow trout. I'm talking close to 20 inches, a lot of them. And uh, they're, they're eating some kind of fly off the surface. They're coming up and eating it and dropping down. You just see them. It's clear water. You see them come up, bloop, and back down they go. And there's bunches of them in there. And I tried spinners. I've tried minnows. I, I, I've tried garlic bait, which is a floating bait. I've tried every. I got worms on a bobber. Nothing will work. I even took the worm, put the worm on a bobber, pumped it up, and did the crappie trick. And they didn't want it. I got in my head. They're on some kind of insect. There's a bait shop down the road. Jump on my bike, run down, bought a, a, a package of mealworms, come back, put a little bitty number 12 hook, hook the mealworm in his butt, pump him up, throw him out there past the weed bed, and wait. Bloop, there it goes. Went home with six big rainbows. I think the smallest one was like 17 inches. Because of that technology, inflating the bait. Last one I'll give you, and there's been many of these types of stories. There was this creek called Pine Creek in Pennsylvania that used to get really heavy fishing pressure when it got stocked in the spring for trout. You know, big kids fishing rodeo when they stock the streams. And by summer, this stream would be really low. Fish would concentrate in the holes, but this creek was clear. It would also get really overgrown, and there would be a bunch of holdover brown trout in there, but getting to them was hard. They were, they'd have people throwing shit at them for so long, they don't want to eat, but they gotta eat. They, but they definitely don't want to eat when they see people. So you go downstream and you come upstream and you cast up to them. Well, there was this one big-ass hole, and you just couldn't get at it from downstream. And whenever you came at it from upstream, by the time you got close enough to reach it, they'd see you and they'd hide, and then they aren't going to touch anything. So what I did is I got a worm, like with the crappie, hooked a worm, pumped him up, and put a little bitty orange float on it just so I could see it, and stayed upstream and kind of looked at the way the water went and just fed the line and floated it down into that hole, and when it got there, locked the bail, and then the water just carried that floating worm back over the back of that hole, went home with a stringer full of fish, when no one else could catch them, because you float the bait. It doesn't always work, but when you need it, that $5 little tool and that little bit of knowledge I just gave you will put fish in the cooler, or, or put fish in the fryer, or whatever you want to do with them when other things fail. It won't work on all kinds of bait, but if you can put air in it and make it float, Then the limit on the creativity is up to you. So uh, maybe that makes it worth uh, shopping at T-Spass today, even if you don't need that. But if you're a fisherman and you don't have a way to blow up bait, if you use bait at all, you're wrong if you don't have a way to do it. It's just so many stories like that. I can tell you, you can do a whole show just don't waste. I've caught fish by blowing bait up. With that, time for our song of the day. As, as I've said, for at least through the war years, And again, I'd love to hear from people. I hadn't heard a lot back on this. The few people who have written me back said, go ahead and do it. I'm thinking about just playing the, the for the song of the day, the number one song of the year in question, all the way up till we hit present time. Um, it's up to you guys whether I do that or not. It's going to be based on feedback. But like I said, I am going to do it through the Warriors, at least through, you know, through 1945. 
Today's song is, uh, you know, I played a little bit of the, the Andrews Sisters for you. They didn't quite make it to the top of the charts. They were number seven. Uh, Glenn Miller Band, who we've already heard have a number one hit. It's amazing. You look back at these times, and they had their own, I don't know, Jay-Z's, Beyonce's, Lady Gaga's, whoever tops the charts multiple years in a row. They had their own kind of rock stars back there, and even though this music was uh, not rock and roll. But, but Chattanooga Choo Choo is a pretty cool song. Um, there's a lot of different versions of it with Glenn Miller playing in it, including instrumental. Uh, I found one from a movie, and I'm going to play the one piece of it from the movie for you, but... Uh, It gives you kind of the, the feel-good mentality of the time, and you can't help but look back and think that that, that, that that optimism, in spite of the depression, is about to meet the reality of warfare in a big way. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to make how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It's my day Bend an ear and listen to my version Of a really solid Tennessee excursion Pardon me, boy Is that the Chattanooga choo-choo? Yes, yes Track 29 Boy, you can give me a shine Can you afford to board Chattanooga choo-choo? I got my fare And just a trifle to spare You leave the Pennsylvania station About a quarter to four Read a magazine and then you're in Baltimore Dinner in the diner Nothing could be finer Than to have your ham and eggs in Carolina When you hear the whistle blowing Eight to the bar Then you know that Tennessee is not very far Shovel all the coal in Gotta keep it rolling gonna be a certain party at the station satin and late i used to call funny face she's gonna cry until i tell her that i'll never roll so chattanooga choo-choo won't you choo-choo me home chattanooga chattanooga all aboard chattanooga chattanooga get aboard Chattanooga choo-choo Won't you choo-choo me home Chattanooga choo-choo